Nothing that I have perceived of the American religion is more persuasive than the image of the Southern Baptist alone in the garden with Jesus. Even if, as I have to believe, the Baptist ultimately is alone with herself, she knows the two truths of spirituality that are most worth knowing. She knows beyond knowing that she is no part of the creation, and she possesses the other American knowledge also, the freedom that is wildness, total spiritual solitude. So wrote Harold Bloom in his fairly recent and unilluminating book called The American Religion. Though mistaken in fact, Bloom has hit on something that is often thought about Christianity, and that is that it's an individualistic religion. That is, that it's a religion that doesn't say so much about us as a community or families, but it speaks very much about us as individuals. Christianity has often been misunderstood as a religion of individualism, reflecting Greek influence, people would often say, rather than the more community-oriented religions of Africa or Asia. And certainly Christianity does teach the accountability of each individual before God. Well, if people make that charge about Christianity, it's even more so made about Protestantism in particular. After all, isn't it, we Protestants who take our identity from the fact that we believe that we are justified by God through faith alone. The individual stands before God with no need of a human mediator other than the God-man Jesus Christ. And, well, if it's true of Protestants, how much more is this true of evangelicals? Evangelical Protestants who stress so much that individual experience of the new birth where we come to realize our own sin personally and where we pray to God for forgiveness and where he gives us new life in Christ. And if that's true of evangelical Protestants, well, how much more of Baptists most of all? After all, we Baptists are the one who stress that there is no infant baptism. There is baptism for believers only. Churches are to be composed of those who have not been coerced, but it is a voluntary cooperation of people who, in following Jesus, as they understand it, feel they are called to covenant together, to follow him together. But how we have to make that statement and that decision individually. And so, therefore, with Baptists, there's no possibility of a state church. When you have infant baptism in a Lutheran church, certainly a Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox church, in a Presbyterian or Methodist church, there you can have a state church. Infant baptism can be as wide as the population of a geographic area. But Baptists? Well, there's no chance of a state religion with Baptists. Baptists know that only those who choose individually to be a part of the church can be a part of the church. And so Baptists have historically in this country been great champions of religious liberty. In the earlier part of this century, the historic Protestant belief in the priesthood of the believer became twisted into uh, what was called soul competency by some Christians in America, which essentially was the demand of one Christian to others, you keep your nose out of my life. Just as every tub stands on its own bottom, so every man is his own pope. Each of us is our own religion. Robert Bella, in his book, Habits of the Heart, noted this as he interviewed people around America about their understanding of Christianity. 
He kept noting how everybody was individually tailoring it to fit themselves. He called the phenomena Sheila-ism. After this one person that he interviewed named Sheila, who liked to think of God this way, but not this way and this way, but then particularly liked this and that bit of Christianity as well. He said he found this kind of designer religion typical of the people that he interviewed. And it's not just academics and analysts who look and think and say these things. How many times have you heard someone say, who is a member of a Christian church, religion is a private matter? Of course, it is a very personal matter, Christianity. It must be if it's going to be genuine. Often people, though, who say religion is a private matter simply mean that they don't want to talk about it. It's something you keep very much to yourself. Tennessee Williams, explaining why he had given up visiting a psychoanalyst, said he was meddling too much in my private life. We do have a tendency to think of our religion, our private lives, as like our ambitions, part of our private fantasies or fears. And that's where this little letter of James in the New Testament that we've been studying for a month now on Sunday mornings, and for the last two years in this church on Wednesday nights, that we come to our last study of this morning as we say goodbye to the book of James as a church for a while. That's where this last section of James's letter shows us that any saving faith, any truly Christian faith, can't be private. Personal, yes, but not finally private because both God and his people are involved. Any religion which isn't just thoughts and opinions, but which includes actions, can never finally be completely private. Just to refresh your mind, what James has done in this letter up to this point is he sort of pinned these early Christians he's writing to against the wall. He's told them in the first chapter that they're not to despise trials because they're hard things. They shouldn't try to avoid something simply because it's difficult. And then on the other hand, he's shown them in the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that they're supposed to obey Scripture, all of Scripture. Not just those parts that they particularly like, but all of it. And then when he's made that clear, he gets to what I think is the main bulk of the letter in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. And that is about how this applies to their stress-ridden, faction-prone church. Having shown the goodness of trials and the active nature of faith, James, in this concluding part of his letter, tells them that faith is social, that it has to be lived out together in their understanding of speech and sickness and sin and in their practice of prayer. Well, our passage is James chapter 5, the last eight verses of the book, found verses 13 to 20 on page 1,200. I think it's 69 of your pew Bible, 1,269. Listen to these last few verses in James's letter and follow along because I think this sermon, more than most of them from James, is going to be a bit of a detective novel as we try to figure something out in this passage that may seem strange to us upon first reading. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? 
Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, the first topic from this passage I'll simply mention, and that is their practice of speech in verse 13. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. He's essentially exhorting them there to be God-centered in their speech and in their communication. So he says, are you feeling bad? Well, would you like some specific application here? Are you feeling bad? Pray to God. Are you feeling good? Praise God. He's saying they should be God-centered in their speech and life. Really, I think this goes more with the, the, the previous section that we were thinking of last week, where they were looking at how all of life has to do with our being dependent on God and how we need to recognize that. So that's all I'm going to say about verse 13. Moving on to something that probably brings a few more questions to us when we read it on matters which I think are probably most interest us and confuse us here. And that is their understanding of sickness in verses 14 to 16 and how they're to deal with it. You know, at first, verse 14 may look like just another one of those is any one of you passages. Because you see in verse 13 you've got two of those, and then verse 14 begins like that. But really, though the word pray makes verse 13 seems like it goes with all this, as I said, I think it goes with more with verse 12 about our speech. And indeed, that whole section about being dependent on God. But verse 14, is any of you sick? This seems to open up another topic, which really is continued throughout the rest of the passage, throughout the rest of the book. This is how James finishes with this question. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, uh, some of this we Christians have no problem with. Uh, For example, the basic idea here in this passage that we see in verse 15, that God answers prayer for the sick. Uh, Those of us who are here this morning as Christians have no problem with this. Uh, We know this is true. We don't have to bend and break our worldview to try to fit this in. We, We understand this. After all, we Christians are not naturalists. That is, we don't deny the supernatural. We know there are things going on that we that are above us in our powers. So prayer to God makes complete sense. We're not deists. We don't believe the deity, that God is some cold, removed being who's not caring and concerned for us. No, we Christians aren't like that at all. We know that God has chosen to involve himself in our world, that he cares about us, that he invites us to make our cares known to him and to entrust ourselves fully to him 
And in this case here, with our physical health, just as much with other concerns we may have, we're invited to do this. I have no doubt that many of us who are sitting here this morning right now uh, could give testimonies, even personal testimonies, to the way that God has involved himself in our lives in extraordinary ways when we've been sick, perhaps when we've prayed for ourselves or for others, and God has granted a recovery of health. I remember one time soon after I became a Christian when uh, I was um, limping around in one of my legs a lot because the doctor said I had growing pains. I didn't know what it was. I went to the doctor and he just explained the bones were growing faster than the cartilage at that point. Well, I, I went to uh, this Bible study that I just started to attend that night. And I, when they were asking for prayer requests, I just innocently shared, well, that, you know, my, my knees had been hurting for a while. And, and the doctor, when I'd asked him about it, I'd seen him actually that afternoon when I'd asked him about it and said, what should I do? He said, well, there's nothing you can do. You know, you just have to wait a few months until your ligaments catch up and then you'll be fine again. Okay? And, um, well, I was, I was, I was embarrassed, uh, mortified, really, to find at the end of the meeting the lady who was leading the Bible study asked me to get in the middle of the circle. They were then going to lay hands on me and pray for me. I hadn't intended to have that happen at all. I mean, I felt if that happened, then I was going to have to somehow hope I could feel better or something, you know, if they were going to be praying for me in front of everybody else. So I got in the middle of the circle, and they laid hands on me and prayed a very simple prayer. And uh, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I supposed to do now? And I stood up, my knees were absolutely fine. For the first time in months, they weren't hurting at all. Now, maybe that was psychosomatic. I leave it to you. We can sort it out in heaven. But I have no doubt that God answers prayer for things like this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, because I think most of you who are sitting here believe this as well. We know that God hears and answers prayer. Well, we may believe that God sometimes heals, but I think it's the assurance that James has here. That God will save, that he will heal, that he will raise up in verse 15. And that's the thing that gives us pause, this air of certainty in the verse. Look at verse 15 again. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now that is more a problem to us. That's where we start to go, well, I don't know about this. I mean, when we look back at our own experience, and we can see times when we've prayed or others we know have prayed for someone to be healed, and it doesn't seem that they are. James seems to be saying here that this prayer for healing is one which we can know will be answered. Unlike so many of our prayers, which are little more than wishes, this prayer seems to be one which is prayed with no doubt, with no hesitancy or uncertainty about the answer. The prayer seems to know that God will raise up the sick one. Now, perhaps that means the final resurrection. If that's the case, then there's no problem here. Perhaps that's all it means here by saving the sick person or making them whole or well. And if we're Christians, we do have that assurance. That whatever bodily malady we have, well, we have a new body to inherit one day. If you want to know more about that, go read 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5. And you could read this passage in James that way. And that would eliminate, as I say, all kinds of difficulties that we have with the certainty that there seems to be in this verse, which seems to clash with our own experience. Yet it seems to me as I read this honestly, if I'm not trying to make it fit, if I'm just trying to listen to what James is saying, it seems like he's clearly talking about a health or a raising up which happens in this life. 
If we're honest, we're probably also a bit puzzled by this idea of turning to others, like he tells us to do here. Um, to us, both the, the instruction to bring the elders and what the elders themselves then do to affect this physical healing, it seems strange. Verse 14, he says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, let's be honest. I mean, when we're sick, calling the elders is not our first thought. We tend to think of uh, what health plan do we have? Uh, who do we call particularly at first for this malady? Is there some way I can get a prescription for this this afternoon so that I'll be okay by work tomorrow? Our first thought is not calling to the church office and seeing if somebody's there who can come anoint us with oil and pray for us. But James may be telling them to do so, not so much because of the sickness, but because of the sin that seems to be involved. And look at what the elders do. What they do, they do in the name of the Lord. They pray for the sick one. Well, that's obvious to us. We have no trouble with that. But then they anoint the sick one with oil. That's alien to the traditions of many of us who are sitting here this morning. Uh, It was quite commonplace in the culture that James is writing to. Some commentators say that this anointing with oil was medicinal, that this was actually a way of, of bringing physical healing that was looked at as we would look at a prescription of a drug today. Well, that's kind of true, but you're not going to find many statements about how oil was viewed as an all-purpose healing agent. They may have thought olive oil was good for this or good for that, but there, wasn't a lot of, there weren't people around saying it was just good for everything. Now, this seems to be a bit more than that. It seems to be... Uh, like in the Old Testament, where you have someone actually being consecrated over specially to God, handed over particularly to him, and entrusted to him, being set aside for his special providential care. That seems to be what's going on here with this anointing with oil. It's important to note, I think, that these elders in both the things they do, praying and anointing with oil, don't do it in their own name, or even in the name of the church. They do it as emissaries of a higher power. They do it in the name of the Lord. Strangest of all to us, perhaps, is this whole connection of dealing with sin and dealing with sickness together. Look at the end of verse 15. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We're not surprised by the thought of people getting sick or of us appealing to God for physical healing. As I say, most of us here this morning probably even believe that God not only sustains our health, but sometimes grants us reprieve from sickness in response to our heartfelt prayers. But it is this connection of sin and sickness that seems so alien to the way we think. I mean, sin seems so immaterial, so spiritual and ethereal and invisible. Whereas sickness, well, it seems so concrete, so physical. If you had the right implements, you can see it going on in the body. It seems so material and observable. Maybe at one time we would have ascribed sickness to some higher supernatural cause. But since Van Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope and Bastur had his theory about germs, I mean, hasn't all that been left with uh, belief in ghosts and witches and hobgoblins and the tooth fairy? Well, it seems not. The Bible very clearly presents an awareness that physical and spiritual health are tied. 
David presents them in parallel when he wrote in Psalm 103, verse 3. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. And again, when he prayed in Psalm 41, O Lord, have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. I could go through finding lots of little proof texts, but I don't have to do that. The whole warp and woof of the Bible story presumes this. From the garden where you have in Genesis the fall of man and with the introduction of sin comes death. To the very end and consummation of the book of Revelation where in the heavenly city with the abolition of sin you have the abolition of physical suffering and death as well. The whole Bible assumes a connection between sin and sickness, between holiness and health. Not perfectly in this world, We know that we get to lots of troubles when we try to do that. I'm not going to go down that road very long in the sermon. You can come and talk to me about that afterwards if you want. But we know there's not a connection that's perfectly obvious to us. If you're taking notes and you want scriptures on that, the blind man in John 9. The disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, neither. had nothing to do with that. It was so that God would be glorified. Or the story of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Where that thorn in his flesh, we don't read it for any sin. It's so that God's strength may be perfected in his weakness. Or the whole story of Job in the Old Testament, when all the people around him thought that he was suffering because of sin in his life. But in fact, ironically, it was because of his very righteousness that God was allowing Job to undergo these trials. And of course, supremely, we have the example of Jesus, whose suffering was the most unjust in the history of the world. But in our passage here, it seems clear that unconfessed sin can lead to physical sickness. Now, that's going to give you something to talk about over coffee today. It seems clear that unconfessed sin can lead to physical sickness. Though he says there in verse 15, if he has sinned, I don't think that's because James had any doubt that the ones in this church who were sick had sinned. Rather, I think he was indicating that even such sins that were so serious that they would lead to immediate physical punishment by God, even those kinds of sins could be forgiven when confessed and repented of. That's why James exhorts them here to confess And to pray so that you may be healed. You see, God is Lord of the physical as well. Health and sickness are from his hand. Health and virtue, sickness and sin do not invariably go together. I just gave you a list of scriptures that show exceptions to that. But this is what we need to hear today. They do sometimes. I know that can be a platform for the worst kind of psychological paranoia. I know that can be an excuse for the most manipulative program of behaviorism a church could ever come up with. But I'm sorry, I didn't write this thing. I'm simply telling you what God has inspired. And he has said here that sometimes sin can lead to sickness. Pain, you know, is useful as an indicator. Pain tells us something that's going on in our bodies. And it may be that pain and our health 
can also give us good direction in our spiritual lives sometimes. As Thomas Manton the Puritan said, when God takes away the disease and does not take away the guilt, it is not deliverance, but a reprieve. You see, it's dangerous to us. When God allows us to have physical health, when our souls are sick, And therefore, when there is physical sickness that God and His grace will use to turn our mind's eye to our sin, to cause us to examine ourselves, that is His grace to us. Therefore, there's love in the provision of pain in a world that's fallen and sinful. It would not have been loving of God to anesthetize the world to the effects of sin when our first parents fell. If the wages of sin is death, it is no surprise. And in fact, it is God's love that he sends messengers of pain and sickness on in front of death to warn us of the account that we will give. To remind us that these bodies we trust in so innately will dissolve most certainly and that we will stand and give account before the great judge. So how can we tell when our sickness is directly related to sin? Well, there's only one answer that I know to give. We need to know God and we need to know his word. We need to know what he says is right and what he says is wrong. We need to examine scripture and our own consciences honestly and our own lives. And we should pray for a willingness to admit our sins, to confess them and to repent of them. And so then to pray for forgiveness and for healing. I mean, this is one whole category of motivation which Christians used to have, which we've now laid aside by our trust in medicine. We feel that if we can have antibiotics and some videos to keep our mind going while we're sick in bed, then we'll be fine. And we may be physically for a while. But if you've read any Christian literature from an earlier age than our own, you realize that Christians before have all, together been united very much against us in the way they would take sickness as an occasion for self-examination. Not in an unhealthy, paranoid fashion of knowing that if I can just find the sin to repent of, then this heart trouble will leave me. No, not necessarily that at all. But knowing that sometimes God uses sickness to put his finger on a particular sin in our lives. And so when he lays us aside, we should examine ourselves. We should not simply call the doctor and read a book or watch a video, though those things can be fine. We should also learn from what James is saying here and from what Christians have done for 2,000 years before entertainment and medicine was less easy to come by. We should examine our lives. We should use these things as times for God to speak clearly to us. So much for their understanding of sickness for now. On to the third aspect of their faith together. James brings their attention to, and that is the practice of prayer in verse, uh, the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. He gives the example there of Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Well, you may know this part of Elijah's story from 1 Kings 17 and 18. If you don't, I don't need to recount it here. Enough of it is right there in James, in verses 17 and 18. 
That's the story. I think the reason James brings this up now is because this is an example of the prayer of faith that he just said they had in verse 15 that should be offered for the one who is sick. Here is a prayer of faith. Here in, in, uh, we see in, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah prophesies about there being no rain in the land for the next few years. And then in 1 Kings 18, verse 2, God told Elijah after over three years that he wanted it to rain again. So Elijah's prayers were based upon what he knew God wanted. And that, my friend, I think is a prayer of faith. A prayer of faith is not something that you work up. Faith is a sure and certain perception of God's will. So it's not something that we generate ourselves. It's a gift from God. As we know from Ephesians 2. As we see very clearly from Hebrews 10 and 11 and 12. It is a perception of spiritual reality. Well, such was Elijah's experience. Perhaps, you see, whatever this sin was and the sickness was in the church that James was writing to, perhaps it was so serious that some people thought they should not even pray for it. That it would be in vain even to offer prayer for such a situation as this. We know, after all, that John wrote in 1 John that about some sins about which you should not pray. Well, maybe this was one of those particularly serious sins. So serious that it brought on this sickness in the body. I think this exhortation to the power of prayer shows us that people must have been balking at it in view of the serious situation they were encountering. So much for the practice of prayer. But to understand more what that serious sickness-causing sin was, look at the last two verses of James's letter. Look about... To find there the specific sin that James was writing about. Verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The situation he's describing is clearly one of one of them wandering. It's described negatively there as wandering from the truth, positively as being in error. So this one is wandering off from the truth. He's wandering off from it. He's, he's wandering off from the church. He's differing with them, perhaps, over what God says in his word. That's where we get the idea of heresy from. He's choosing to believe something other than the truth. And that's what this one here is doing. So having left them, he was in error. He says here in verse 20, if a wanderer is brought back or turned, So James envisioned one who has been wandering, being brought to repentance of their errors, literally turning aside from the false course they were on to the true course. And what are the results of that repentance? Well, for the sinner, it says he will be saved from death. That is spiritually, I think. After all, if this error is going to lead to ultimate spiritual death, turning from it, repenting, is part of what leads to salvation. And forgiveness of sins, just as James said up in verse 15. Perhaps also in an interim sense, he'll even be saved from physical death. If this has been a kind of sin that has been causing physical suffering, well then, if confessing, uh, confessing and turning from it may cause God to relent of allowing the sickness in this one. And so the result is for the sinner being saved from death and the result for the church body 
is that his sins will be covered over. You see, turning a sinner from the error of his ways also seems to have a good effect on the church body as a whole. That last phrase in the book, this covering a multitude of sins, we may at first glance take to be a kind of covering over, which we evangelicals talk about sometimes with the word expiation, in which our sins are covered over from the gaze of a holy God so that we are spared his wrath. But two things make me think that's not what James is talking about here. First, while it's a good thing for someone to bring back somebody from wandering, to turn them from error, such turning is never elsewhere said in Scripture to hide our sins from God. Never in Scripture do we read that mere human virtue can obscure human vice from the searching gaze of God. But second also, and I think this is a key to understanding our whole passage on sin and sickness, that phrase, to cover over a multitude of sins, I think is a quote. I think James is quoting from Proverbs. In fact, from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. I think he's alluding to it. Proverbs 10, verse 12, that we will hear more about tonight, Lord willing, says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrong. James here seems to have known that proverb and seems to have been alluding to it in the conclusion of this letter. When a similar phrase of covering over is used in Proverbs 17.9, it is in a similarly social exhortation. He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. There's only one other time in the New Testament this phrase, cover over a multitude of sins, is used. You turn over a couple of pages from James, it's in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. See, there's not a reference to Christ's expiatory death on the cross, but to the action of a believer. Peter's not teaching there that we can make atonement before God for each other's actions, but rather that love can go a long way to protecting the body from your stupidity and your sins. That's what Proverbs is teaching. And that's what I think James and Peter were teaching. So it, it seems that hatred and dissension, tail-bearing and slandering are the kinds of evils which James here is saying can be covered over within the body insofar as they have an effect on others by them coming to an end. It seems that some in the church that James was writing to had accepted a kind of hellish wisdom we read about back in chapter 3 which bore this fruit of divisiveness and dissension in their speech and actions toward each other. I mean, think back over the whole letter of James. What do we see going on they were struggling with? Discriminating against the poor among them. Poisonous curses from their mouths. Bitter envy. Selfish ambition. Boasting. Denying the truth. Disorder. Every evil practice. Fights. Quarrels. Self-centeredness. Worldliness, pride, slander, speaking against your brother, judging your neighbor, bragging, ignoring the good, grumbling against each other, swearing. All of these sins mentioned by James, sins which we may perhaps can assume, were occurring in that body. Now, that doesn't sound like a very peaceful, harmonious, united body, does it? It doesn't sound like the kind of church that could have the first half of our worship service in there. 
But this morning we thought about the unity of us as a family of faith and how that gives testimony to the world about what God is like. Now, they were engaging in spiritual fratricide. They were killing one another spiritually. So it's not very surprising that turning someone from this kind of selfish pseudo-wisdom, which encourages all of this self-destructive behavior, it's not very surprising that would benefit the body. If you get someone who's being like a cancerous cell in the body to stop, of course that's going to be a benefit to the body. You see, true heavenly wisdom is the kind of wisdom that Paul wrote about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the kind of wisdom that James had written these Christians, exhorting them to have. So turning this kind of erring one from the error of his ways will lead not only to his own salvation, but to the protection of the body from the negative effects their sins was having on others. The believing community will then no longer be ripped apart by hatred and strife caused by this kind of hellish wisdom that they had been following. Notice in verses 19 and 20 there, it's not said, James doesn't write those to the one who turns, who themselves repents, like, uh, I mean, rather, to the one who gets others to turn, like Paul in Galatians 6 saying, to those of you who are spiritual, I say, go to those who are sinning. It's not that at all. He's written to the actual ones who are in error. Just like up in verse 14, it's actually written to the one who is sick. Notice this wanderer in verse 19 is called a sinner in verse 20. You see, as I've studied this passage, I've come to the conclusion that this sin of wandering in verses 19 and 20 is very likely the sin of verse 15 that James has in mind for the whole passage. So if you're here today as a real Bible student, you want to try to figure this out, I've just given you the key to understanding it. I think that the sin of dissension that he's talking about in 19 and 20 is the very sin that he's talking about specifically up in verse 15. If anyone has sinned, I think that's what's causing the, pass- the, the sickness in the body. If this is so, then this helps explain how James can be so certain that God will raise a person up. If they have recognized their divisive attitudes and actions as sins and have confessed them as such before the elders of the body and have repented of them, then we can be certain that God wants to forgive such a repentant sinner. We have no reason to think he would withhold his healing from one who has been afflicted specifically because their sins were selfishly wounding the body. If the sickness was not simply to punish them, but if it was to teach them, then its purpose would have been accomplished when the sinner repents. So it's not surprising that God would restore them to health. And that you could know that when you pray for such a one who's repented. And if this is so, then this helps explain why James would tell them to go to the elders. You see, if James has every sickness in mind, the elders would do little else. The elders would spend all their time going to whichever members of the body are sick and praying for them and anointing them with oil. There wouldn't have been time to do anything else. But if he was exhorting them to go to the elders when they had this sickness because they had this sickness because of sins against the body, well, then it would be appropriate for them to confess them to the elders and to have the elders of the whole body pray for their restoration, spiritually and physically. And finally, if this is so, it helps to show the connection between sickness and sin. 
You know, God so often seems to work by types so that we can easily understand him. So with his people in the Old Testament. He would speak to them about his relationship with them often through a prophet and the prophet's wife as a picture. So the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is a shadow of what Christ would do on the cross. So here, isn't it an appropriate thing that the illness that one is causing in the body of Christ be represented by the illness in one's own body? But if there was no other way of hearing and understanding that this would be a way that God in his mercy shows this. In God's goodness, there is often a suitableness between the trial that we experience and the lesson that God wants us to learn. So if other ways of teaching have been exhausted, who here of us this morning can say that God should not go to such measures in his searching love? After all, we know he takes a special concern for his church. He considers the church his bride, we read. And like the good husband, what good husband does not consider his bride his own body? So when Paul is struck down on the road to Damascus, when he's going there to persecute the church, what is it Jesus asks him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In fact, as we think of this connection between sin and sickness, what is the one other place in New Testament letters where we see this kind of clear connection? It's in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church where there was gross sin, so much so that Paul warns, your meetings are doing more harm than good. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Sounds like James chapter 2 about favoritism. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why. Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So even as the sickness in the Corinthian church was being caused by divisiveness, which was hurting the body, so it seems that the sins of dissension were causing sickness in this church James was addressing. Even on a human level, I think there's some understanding of this. We know that stress in interpersonal relationships can lower the immune system, make it less effective. Whatever our human understanding of it may be, though, James is clear here that sins against the body of Christ seem to merit God's special judgment. Now, don't misunderstand me. All sin is offensive to God, and all of us sin. Phil Jensen said in a meeting I was at a few years ago, the basic reason people don't sin is lack of opportunity. That's the sad truth. All of us would probably sin more if the right or wrong opportunities presented themselves to us. No question about that. But there's no getting around the fact that God seems to care in a special way about sins against his body. 
You see, we show much of the truth about our relationship with God by the way we relate to one another. As a Christian, I should know that my primary obligation in this life is not to myself, but it's to God and to the body of Christ. I am to use myself for others. You know, they always tell you in marriage counseling that when you're getting ready to marry someone else, you need to know that you're not just marrying them, you're marrying their whole family. Well, those of you who are married know it's true. Yeah, I see all the single people are the ones that laughed. It's like that when you become a Christian. You cannot take God as your God without taking His people as your people. I'm sorry, you can't do it. That's why it's so vital you commit yourself to a church. Lest you be deceiving yourself with some idea of a God that I love, I support. But when it comes to His very children that you find difficult, then friends... That's exactly where God is intending to show you the truth about your own love for him. Our Christianity, if it would live up to its name, must affect other people in a loving and godly way. What does it mean to say that we're followers of Jesus Christ? If we don't give our lives and love for one another, if we don't do that and care for each other. So religion is personal, but it is also very public and social, very much about how we live together. The father of lies, as he was tempting Adam in the garden, probably told him something like, don't worry, if you get it wrong, it won't hurt anybody else. But of course, religion is a private matter, is a lie, plain and simple, a lie. So watch your words. Watch the kind of divisiveness you sow in this church or any other. Because I'm simply telling you from studying Scripture, God seems to have a special concern for his church. One day, the telephone rang in the office of St. Thomas Episcopal Church over in northwest D.C., here in Washington, where President Franklin Roosevelt attended church at the time. And an eager voice inquired, Tell me, uh, do you expect the president to be in church this Sunday? The rector, who had had a lot of calls like this, explained patiently, Well, I cannot promise, but we do expect God to be there. And we fancy that will be reason enough to have a tolerably large audience. The church is God's special concern. The church is where Christ displays his glory. God cares specially about his church. The very thing which God meant to be a model for what he intends to do with his whole creation, that which God has made for his special glory, his church, must not become a theater to disgrace him by the actions of any of us. And I warn you of that. As a minister of one who fiercely loves his bride, and as an ambassador of the approaching king, we will give an account, each one of us, individually, for how we have treated one another. As James said earlier, the Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Let's pray together. Dear Father, you know the truth of your word and the truth of our lives like none of us do here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts and would cause, up to, cause us to render up that last bit of selfishness which prevents us from loving each other in a way that shows your good love and mercy and 
just character. Thank you for the way you have tolerated us, for the way you have shown love to us continually, for the way you've delighted in the smallest steps of our obedience. Lord, thank you even for the patient ways in which you correct us through your word and through rebuke and through sin and sickness. We pray, Lord, that you would continue, that you would get glory to yourself through each one of us as we live together in this covenanted community, as we try to show our love for you by our love for each other. Father, help us to be mindful of each other's needs, concerned about each other's cares, and loving as we have opportunity to be. Lord, give us a greediness about seizing opportunities for showing love and doing kindness. Lord, we thank you for the care and concern that you have for us. We pray we would reflect that to each other, to your glory through Jesus. Amen.